the good news is ushered in with six little letters. A word we often fling like feathers, as if together their substance has no weight. Repent. This is no toothless sorry. This is turn. This is change. This is radical shift away from the things of the world towards the heart of heaven. A linking word, this. Repent and believe. Repent and follow. If we're not careful, repent becomes hollow. A word not worthy of the blood shed for us. Central to the life of discipleship is that which Nikki alluded to so eloquently in her poem this morning. The need for forgiveness, the need to forgive, the need to understand that brokenness is not some ephemeral concept out there, it's the damage done between people, both of whom God has created. It's hard to believe that the one who you have a damaged relationship with was actually created by the same God you were. <laughs> but they were. Darn it. And so the, the central demand of discipleship perhaps is the call to forgive. We've been following a pattern of congregational prayer where we where we invited a lot of praying together aloud. Uh, there are two realities about doing that that make us change our plans this morning. One is, as a large group gathers together to pray aloud, they take a long time. And it's a little hot to take a long time this morning. So we, we want to we be aware of our environment as we pray. But secondly, to pray about broken relationships is a scary thing. It creates for us those long pauses of awkward silence in our hearts and in our lives. And so this morning, I simply want to create some awkward silence for you as I pray. And so let my words become, if nothing else, the background noise that you can fill with your own awkward silences about the brokenness that you need to deal with. Would you pray with me? Lord, we hear the word of the one who collected the Proverbs. He says, lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. We confess that laying aside our immaturity is the last thing we want to do. We, we like our immaturity. It sustains us some days. We confess that, Lord. That we have held on too long to some of those broken relationships. We 
we've held on too long to those who we would label as the enemy or the one who wronged me or the bad guy. We acknowledge that it interferes with following Jesus. But we also tell you, Lord, quite frankly, it, it's hard to forgive those who have deeply wronged us. It's hard for us to lay aside our immaturity. It's hard for us to do as Joseph's brothers did in Genesis, to, to beg of their brother, please forgive the crime, the servants of God, the God of your father. We have, we have each one of us found times in our lives where we've been thrown down the well like Joseph was. Now maybe we had it coming and maybe we didn't, but we find ourselves at the bottom of that well and the people who we thought were our family and our friends have deceived us and abandoned us. And we've been angry and hurt and we've become bitter. We recognize, we recognize God that you've pardoned all of us. It's hard to live with that reality. It challenges all of all of the assumptions of our world. Who would who would rather indulge in the myth of redemptive violence than in the possibilities of reconciliation? Please forgive us, Lord, the crime of abandoning and wrecking relationships. We remember the words of Apostle Peter who came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Let me be generous, Jesus, and say, seven times. And Jesus said, nah, not seven, but seventy times seven. We lose count, Lord, after about three hundred. So teach us to be unyielding in our forgiveness of others, to be unyielding in the forgiveness of ourselves, to hear Spirit, speak to us the words of peace and hope that we need when things aren't right between us and another. We, uh, we, we easily let the words roll off our tongue, forgive our sins as we forgive. We acknowledge that you taught us to pray that way, Lord, but you're the only one who can grant us the grace to live those words. And so we pray this morning for the grace to live deeply in the experience of reconciliation. To make peace, not the absence of conflict, but, but things made right in the world. That's what we want. 
even, even when we're not sure we want it. So give us the grace to live those words. God, we are often too slow or too quick to forgive. Pray that your spirit would guide our response to the hurt and resentment we feel, to the brokenness that we hold close to us, to the diet of pain that we accept over the banquet of reconciliation. So we pray, help us to love with both the honesty and the wisdom that Christ offers us this day. We do this with grateful hearts, knowing that your design and your desire is not that we get by in the world as it is, but that we help create the world that you intend this world to be. And in order to do so, we find ourselves driven again and again to pray in the way that Jesus taught us, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Some of you may not be aware, but there's been some buzz in the news and things that this year is a very special year in film history. Uh, 2015 is the year that Marty and Doc travel to in 1989's Back to the Future 2. Uh, specifically, October 21st, so we still have a couple months to roll out the hoverboards and biometric doors and jetpacks and flying cars and to bring back the fax machines. There's so many fax machines in that movie. Uh, also, for you sports fans, this is the year that the Cubs will win the World Series, so watch out for that. It's been about 106 years since that happened. Uh, but um, the reason I mentioned that, I just thought of that when Jesus announced that the time is fulfilled. The time has come. The time for World Back to the Future 2 has come. Um, but I think that many people, when they heard Jesus say that, back then and probably now, when Jesus announces that the time has come, or the time is fulfilled, when people heard it back then and when people hear it now, I think that we are probably still waiting. We wonder what the time being fulfilled means for us because it really doesn't feel like anything's changed or new. Um, you know, we have smaller phones that are portable and other things like that. But uh, we are kind of a time-obsessed culture in some ways. And time travel, I think, is one of those tropes that really pervades our culture, you know, it makes us think, what would we do differently if we could go back? What will be the outcome of all these things that are happening now when we go forward? Uh, and it conceptually fulfills our instant gratification needs because we don't have to grind out every single day between now and then. Um, you know, Doc Brown could just go forward to 2015 and get all the good stuff, and he didn't have to wait 26 years like we did. Um, 
It's kind of like sometimes life feels like the end of an NBA game where we're just grinding out each day and each second, just, you know, fouling the big guy and watching him shoot three th free throws, and it just seems like it takes forever. Uh, and today we're talking about discipleship, and discipleship takes time. Uh, it's one of those things that comes natural to us. Uh, last week we spoke about worship, how worship becomes natural, and it's just something we intrinsically do. I think discipleship is the same way. We see it in parenting, in teaching, in training, uh, in just we as learners. We seek to be discipled in our learning efforts. And it's one of the primary ways that we understand our relationship with God. And it just takes time. It's a slow process. And I have a feeling that when Jesus called these four men on the Sea of Galilee, they thought that Jesus meant it was a time for action and for adventure. And while they did get some adventures, uh, which they probably already had since they were out on the stormy sea every day, they didn't realize that it would just mean like walking to Jerusalem and then walking back. Maybe on the way Jesus will talk to somebody and will listen and watch. Probably not exactly what they were expecting to be called to. And uh, their call of discipleship was a call to wait and see and step into that struggle of waiting. And so we want to take some time now to just wait and see and kind of peer into this call and see what the passage has to offer us here and now. And uh, Mark's Gospel begins in verse 14. Uh, this passage has kind of a, a darker note to it. And Mark's passage is very brief, very to the point, very snappy. Uh, he uses the word immediately twice in this passage, and he uses it over 40 times in 16 chapters, which is very, you know, just immediately things just happen. And in terms of detail, Mark's not really like John Grisham or George R.R. R. Martin. There's not a lot to go on. He just says, oh, and then that happened, and then moving on. And so we kind of got to take what we can get. And one of the weird details he puts in here is that John was put into prison. It's very dark and kind of sinister. John was Jesus' cousin, kind of a wandering prophet of the wilderness, and the one who was paving the way for Jesus. He's been arrested. It's a dark transitional period. And those who follow John, John has disciples, and they need help. They need to follow what's next. They need guidance and leadership, and they, they need discipleship. They're in limbo. And the other note of the setting is that Jesus goes into Galilee. And Galilee is kind of a dump. Uh, Jesus chooses Galilee because it's out of the way, it's on the fringe. There's no one there that really matters. The people that had followed John lived in Galilee. They had repented and been baptized and gone back to fishing. They weren't the popular or powerful people. Uh, one or two leaders from the reigning council, maybe, but mostly they were just ordinary outcasts, the powerless. And this may have been the first time Jesus spoke to these four men, to Simon and to Andrew and to John, to James, but they knew who he was because John had been their leader. He had been, there, he had been discipling them, and he had pointed Jesus out to them. He said, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had done the way of paving the way for the Lord. 
And that path is this ancient art and rite of discipleship. And it's in these verses that we address and tackle what that means. And Jesus begins first by proclaiming good news. And we're really lacking some details on that. It's just kind of a soundbite. Uh, so what is good about the news? Basically just that the kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. It's already in our midst. It is available for us to participate in and benefit from. This is a proclamation of victory to a people that are already conquered by worldly powers. And the mode of our participation in this kingdom is repentance. I absolutely love what you said this morning, Nikki. It was beautiful. Um, it is. It's a transformational message, a message of turning to the righteousness that is in our midst and around us and stepping into a relationship of grace and trust. And Jesus' call for us to discover the meaning of the kingdom of God by living it out. There is kind of an implicit risk in what Jesus is calling people to do, something that will break down the fundamental fabric of the structures of the fallen world and turn to the victory of God over the fallen ways of the world. The good news and the time that are fulfilled are a signal that our captivity to those aspects of time that we worry about, the regret and the worry and the concern about the future, about what we did in the past, the struggling for our own temporal confinement is over. Time itself is God's. And he has come to offer his very presence to guide and to teach us and to lead us through time. And we still get bunched up, I think, because it looks like God is doing it wrong. <laughs> Sometimes there's just, we just don't get it 100%. It just seems off. And there is now just enough time for God to do everything his way in our life. Sometimes uh, when I see the beginning of the Jesus story of him calling people and, and uh, leading people, I just think of Morgan Freeman in the film Lean on Me, um, where, you know, like Jesus is starting an after-school program or something like that. And it's kind of an absurd image, but I just, in those movies like that, like that, and Dangerous Minds, stuff like that, you have someone stepping into a broken system and doing it their way against what everyone else is telling them they should do. And Jesus is doing things in a way that cultural attitudes would tell him he's doing it all wrong. Uh, he's living in the sticks. He should move to Los Angeles, to Hollywood, to New York City. Instead, he moves to Fresno. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's walking along the shores of Lake Elsinore. <laughs> And he's ta talking to these backward northerners. He should be talking to the leaders of Jerusalem. He should be talking to the mayor of Galilee or Fresno. Uh, instead, he's talking to stinky dock workers who work all night and smell like fish. Why is Jesus even talking to anyone? Any rabbi worth his weight uh, doesn't recruit. He just presents himself and learners come to him, disciples come to him. They want, the, they, he gets to pick the best and the brightest out of the most eager learners. Instead, he's trying to drum up interest in his ideals 
that are totally foreign amongst the least likely candidates in the world. And so we see Jesus' call to discipleship is the same as his values. The first thing he does after collecting these disciples, uh, if we go over to the Gospel of Matthew, he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which is just this long talk about how you've always been taught this, but this is the way it actually is, kind of breaking out of every structure known to the Jewish people. Here's what it's all about. It's a different upside-down and backward system to what you're used to. And it's a lifelong path that's going to change your life forever, vocationally, relationally, and even spatially. You're going to be in a different place than you ever thought you'd be. And that's the good news. And after Jesus proclaims the good news, he asks people to follow it. Uh, one commentator, Paul Berg, sets the stage like this. Perhaps it was a day like any other day in the life of those who fish some these sometimes treacherous waters. Windstorms come up quickly as northwesters blow in from the Mediterranean Sea and over the hill country that surrounds the shores of the lake. Suddenly, without warning, the boats are in danger and the waves threaten to overpower the boats. Simon and Andrew perhaps were weary from a night of fishing, still plying their nets when a stranger approaches them on the shore in the person of Jesus. The dialogue is brief. In fact, it might have appeared to them that the stranger was not that familiar with their trade. Jesus' words must have sounded strange, as he doesn't talk about the usual fishing or lake trout, but fishing for people? Now this rugged, these rugged men of the sea, this would have no correlation to their experience. And the thing about discipleship is that we get caught up in the details of it. We worry a lot, I worry a lot, and I think the disciples had a lot of concerns about the who and the hows and the what's and the how much of it all. But the key question with discipleship is none of the above. When it comes to following, the question is where? Jesus offers just this fundamental kernel. He says, follow me. And without knowing where they would follow him, through the miracles and the slaughter and the transfiguration of light and the darkness at noon, regardless of what they knew, the key element for them was just faith, discipleship, hope. They were looking for something to hope for, something different than what they were experiencing. They didn't care where it would lead them. And there's this sharp edge of uncertainty in this world that we need to dare to hope as disciples. And there's plenty of material to kind of bolster hope as Jesus goes on. Uh, the testimony of John, the testimony of Jesus, uh, it all leads us into this following, which consists of, you know, learning, growing, imitating, and obeying Jesus. And our journey of faith consists mostly of just figuring out how to listen in such a way that we can do that. How can I honestly and with integrity imitate Jesus? How can I obey him authentically and freely? And the essential nature of where Jesus is taking us he kind of sums up in this mysterious phrase, to be fishers of men, to fish for people. And uh, nobody knows what that means, to be really honest with you. Uh, Jesus may have not really meant anything specific by it. He may just be tongue-in-cheek, knowing that his audience were fishermen, so he wanted it to make it clear to them 
whatever you're going to be doing with me, wherever we go, people are going to be the main concern. That's what we're all about here. You're going to be around other people. The image of God as a fisherman is kind of a powerful Old Testament image. And uh, the prophet Jeremiah, as well as Jesus himself in Matthew 13, bring it up. Matthew 13, verses 47 and 48 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, and they threw away the bad. So that's not typically what we think of when we think of what Jesus meant by fishers for people. Um, the relationship of this passage to us and to these men, again, it's, it's kind of wonky. I don't, you know, you can't necessarily just say, oh, this is it. That's it. Um, one thing one commentator wrote, though, I think is for sure, that Jesus would indeed teach them to cast a new kind of net, a net of love and compassion, a net of teaching and healing, a net of salvation and of the kingdom of God in their midst. And perhaps that's the biggest challenge of this, is that we see these men hear this phrase and something provocative grabs them and they just take off. And when we get this historical literature in hand, we have to ask, you know, is it just happening? Is it happening so we're supposed to do the exact same thing? Uh, how much is it an example? Or do we need to flush our careers down the toilet to find Jesus in our life? Uh, why is that thing so compelling to those guys? And what does Jesus want me to do? And I think part of it is just, again, nature. It's this yearning that we have to grow, to learn, to surpass where we are in life. Um, and I think mostly we are caught off guard by the suddenness of all of this. There's something we can relate to, I think, in the suddenness, the immediacy, and just being thrown off kilter by it. The God of the universe is showing up and entering into our lives. And once we grasp that, we go beyond the general. Uh, there's a general call, and then there's this specific call to these men. Be fishers of people. God does not just give a general call to us. He gives a specific call to each one of us. We are being led specifically to imitate Christ in the world in a way that he designed us for, to be transformed by this mind-renewing discipleship. And there's just a long series of steps that kind of seem like they're getting in the way of us just getting there. Sometimes you read this and it seems pretty easy. They just, oh, they just jump ship. Oh yeah, the picture. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, they just hear Jesus and they say, oh yeah, we'll follow you. And that's the end of that little snippet. And it just seems so easy. We tend to galvanize it and say, you know, wow, they left everything. But they didn't even leave their hometown. They were working for their parents, so they could probably go back any time. Uh, it's not so much in the leaving for them, but the staying and doing something different that I think becomes difficult. They're grinding out these moments with Jesus, these little kernels of truth. They only see the difference revealed over time. And I think time, again, time is our, our burden, time is our adversary, it stretches out when we become disciples of Jesus. The beginning 
and the end become just a little more vague and the process becomes the most important thing. Jesus says, follow me, and we respond, and the process of belief has mainly to do with Jesus showing up and us choosing not to resist him. Even if everything about what he is doing doesn't make perfect sense to us. One commentator puts it this way, that a calling over a lifetime is not a comfortable thing. It's not an easy thing. It's a painful thing. The road Jesus walks down and down which we follow is a painful road, but that is how hope walks through the world. And uh, just as a quick illustration, I uh, wanted to share a story. I think I shared this a couple months ago. You can see the picture up there. Um, When I was in seminary, I really didn't want to be in seminary. I really wanted to just leave. I had uh, gone to Africa and worked with a church group there. And when I came back, I enrolled in seminary. I didn't like one or two of the professors, and it just seemed so dry. I didn't know what I was doing there, so I said, I just want to go back overseas. I just want to do, I want to drop this, and I want to go like those disciples did that day. And it was really challenging because, um, well, because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of flailing at that point, which probably what these guys were doing. They're saying, we don't have to fish anymore. Let's go. If it doesn't work, we'll come back next week. And uh, so I was just trying to get away. I was trying to go without knowing where I was going or what I was doing or anything like that. And uh, truth has a funny way of coming to you because at the time I was dating this girl. Uh, We had only been dating for like a month or whatever, and I was going to meet her dad. And that seemed like fairly important to me. And at the same time, I was still like scheming and trying to go overseas, and I had actually just been accepted to join the Peace Corps. I was going to go to Jamaica for two years. And so, and I looked like that. Is the key element of the story. So, um, I have this appointment to go meet with her dad, and uh, we're just, I'm just going to go to his house and talk to him, and, you know, just kind of get to know him, I guess. He gets to know me, make sure it's okay that I'm hanging out with his daughter and stuff. And I am driving over there, and I'm like, man, you know, I had all these balls in the air, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and I just was like, man, God, I have no idea what to say to this guy right now. Uh, I don't really feel like justifying my own existence, and, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I'm driving over, and I'm praying, and, you know, I'm sure we all have different beliefs about how God answers prayer, but for me, it seemed like an audible voice this one time. Uh, and God just said, just listen to him. And so I was like, okay. I'll try that. So I drive over there, and he invites me into his house, and we're sitting there, and I, you know, I realized pretty quick, because, you know, it was a very, we ended up breaking up a couple months later, but it was not really a big deal. Um, And what I realized is that me meeting with him had nothing to do with her at all. Like, we didn't even talk about her, or like me spending time with her, what his expectations were whatever that conversation's supposed to be like, we didn't have that conversation. What we had a conversation was, it was about me and my life and where I was going and what I was doing. And he basically said, Matt, here's what I see. You're dropping out of seminary, you're joining the Peace Corps, you're doing all this stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me. And of course, you know, I had some reasons, some carefully worded reasons to just throw out there to him. Just say, well, it's because of this and that and the disciples and blah, blah, blah. And he basically just, you know, took out his 
metaphorical shotgun and just shot them down, one left and right. And each time he did, I was like, he's right, that doesn't make sense. What am I doing? Where am I going? And um, after about you know half an hour, we started to kind of talk in circles. And I was like, OK, I get it. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can just leave and drop ship and, and take off. I'm not, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. And I you know, prayed about it, spent some time thinking about it. Re I went back and talked to all my mentors and guys that were discipling me that had like signed off and said, oh, that sounds great that you're going overseas again. And they were like, well, yeah, it didn't make any sense to me, but I thought you knew you were what you were doing. And I was like, thanks, guys. <laughs> it, took, it took that guy to tell me I shouldn't do it. So anyways, uh, I realized that God wanted me to stay put. God wanted me to follow through with seminary, to spend time actually learning, growing, and doing, and not just taking off and trying to have adventures and do wild stuff. I think one last thought on this, I hope it kind of ties it together before we spend some time and talk back, but uh, one commentator wrote that the telling of this story, of the calling of the disciples, embodies the authority of Jesus and the wonder of the disciples leaving and following. And it is mainly a confirmation of Jesus, not of the disciples. It is a confirmation of Jesus' identity as the Messiah who goes before us, faces our enemies, and bids us to follow him. And the unexpected part is that the battle is waged by the force of love. That the renewal of God's mercies, Jesus' socially disruptive call, not only is this repentance, but discipleship, calls us to upset our carefully balanced world and to constantly and in new ways look at things, to be refreshed in the grinding out of each day in the terms of healing, liberation, and renewal. A new set of priorities has become the difference maker as we walk through this world following Jesus. And this story leaves us with this sense of urgency, not our own urgency, not that get me to the future urgency, but God's urgency to love the world. And with that, I want to just spend some time in talkback. Um, it's actually smaller than I thought it would be, so hopefully you can read it, but I'll read it to you. Uh, question one, how do we respond to Jesus' use of the metaphor fishing for people? Does it work for us? Why or why not? Um, what new life, what might you be being called to? What in this week's story of Mark's gospel stays with you? Uh, what bothers you? What gives you hope? What surprises you? Does it bring you comfort? Does it make you uncomfortable? What are you called to leave behind as you follow Jesus here and now, this week? What might you be called to move toward? What might you take up and stick with? What does it mean to take up the cross and follow at home, at work? How does obedience to Christ affect our daily interactions and important relationships? How does our church and community reflect on this principle of discipleship? Where, where can we follow Jesus together?